the challenge of a uh, achieving an enacting coalition in the Congress is also a challenge for scholars, researchers to figure out a policy design that will be successful, both not only environmentally and economically, but in the political economy. Welcome to Environmental Insights, podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. Today, we're fortunate to have with us Jonathan Weiner, who is the William and Thomas Perkins Professor of Law at Duke Law School, with appointments also in the Nicholas School of the Environment and the Sanford School of Public Policy. He's also a university fellow of Resources for the Future. We'll talk about his government experience in a moment, but during his scholarly career, he's been the author, co-author, or editor of a half dozen books and has written a hundred scholarly and other articles in various periodicals. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you, Rob. It's terrific to be with you. So before we talk about some of your research and your current thinking about environmental and climate change policy, Let's go back to how you came to be where you are. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Croton-on-Hudson, New York, about an hour north of New York City. I went to the public schools there. To both primary and high school? Yes. um, Carrie E. Tompkins Elementary School, Pierre Van Cortlandt Middle School, and Croton-Harmon High School. (laughs) And then from there, you went on to Harvard College. Is that correct? Yes, Harvard College and law school. And so you graduated from Harvard College in 84, in 87, just three years later, you finished up your your law degree at Harvard Law School. Do I have those numbers correct? Yes. And what was your first job out of law school? My first job out of law school was uh, a judicial clerkship for Judge Jack Weinstein, who is a federal trial judge in New York, in Brooklyn, and among many other things in his illustrious career. He just died last year at age 99. Uh, He was the judge in charge of the Agent Orange uh, mass tort litigation, which which I had the opportunity and responsibility to help work on. And then your second clerkship at the U.S. Court of Appeals is particularly striking. Then I clerked on the U.S. Court of Appeals in Boston for Stephen Breyer. And how was that? Both of those clerkships were um, marvelous and intense experiences, but very different. The trial court is uh, very busy in and out of the courtroom all day, whereas the appeals court clerking for then Judge Breyer, uh, before he was appointed to the Supreme Court a few years later, that's a much more um, solitary and contemplative life Mm -hmm. of studying legal questions and only seeing the lawyers in court about once a month when there are oral arguments. Now, that, that sounds like that's a good transition to scholarship. What, what was actually your next job after you finished up that clerkship? Even before clerking for those two judges, I had worked on uh, environmental and risk management projects for professors in law school and in um, uh, even when I was in college. And so after the clerkships with Judge Weinstein and Judge Breyer, Uh, I then went to work at the U.S. Department of Justice for uh, one of the professors from law school for whom I had worked, Richard Stewart. 
uh, and, and Dick Stewart hired me as his special assistant when he was appointed the head of the Environment Division of the Justice Department um, in 1989. Now, is it, is it fair to say that Dick Stewart um, w- could be identified as one of the founders of what eventually came to be known as the area of environmental law scholarship? He's certainly one of the uh, early and major figures in that field. A lot of his work in the 1970s was on administrative law, uh, still viewed as uh, pathbreaking and um, landmark articles. Starting in the late 1970s, early 80s, uh, Dick Stewart with Bruce Ackerman and others began writing a series of articles about economic incentive instruments for environmental policy. And so I was with working for Judge Weinstein, Judge Breyer, and then Dick Stewart, I was really steeped in that arena. And then from there, you is that when you went on to uh, Duke Law School, joining the faculty? Not immediately. So I, I worked for Dick Stewart at the Justice Department for two years, and there we worked a lot on uh, the formulation of U.S. climate change policy in 1989 to 92, including the Framework Convention on Climate Change, which I helped negotiate. But then I I also worked at the Office of Science and Technology Policy, the President Science Advisor, and then at the Council of Economic Advisors from um, in 1992 and and all of 1993, pretty much. So, um, the first year of the Clinton administration, I was at uh, CEA, and there I worked, among other things, on something called Executive Order 12866, which is an arcane name for the order President Clinton issued that's still in force today that um, provides the guidelines for cost-benefit analysis of regulation. Not not arcane to listeners uh, to this podcast, I can tell you. <laughs> uh, so in bipartisan pa- fashion, then, you served in both the Bush 41 and the Clinton administrations, if I have that right. Yes, and there was a lot of continuity there, I would say. Um, you know, that was an era when the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990 were a very bipartisan uh, issue and the, um, the climate change negotiations as well. Of course, there were, there were disagreements, but in my work, for example, at Council of Economic Advisors, I worked for David Bradford uh, in the last year of the Bush administration and then uh, a for... A wonderful man who died tragically. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, I really miss him. He was a, a wonderful gentleman. And then I worked in the Clinton administration for uh, Laura Tyson, was the chair of CEA, and for Alan Blinder and Joe Stiglitz. And on the issue, for example, of designing an economic incentive-based policy to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, there was, I would say, uh, substantial agreement among uh, all of those Involved, and so there was a lot of there was a lot of continuity in that transition. Yeah, it's a remarkable contrast with today, which we've talked about with Dick Schmollensey and others in previous of these podcasts. So tell me now, at this point, you go to uh, Duke Law School to join the faculty, is that right? Yes, and by the way, Dick Schmollensey was at CEA, uh, and I had worked with him and Howard Grinspect when I was at the Justice Department, and I'm you know, grateful to them for engaging me in the work at CEA too. Yes, then I went to Duke Law School in 1994. I was then seven years out of law school, and so I was I was getting past the point where I could still be eligible for an entry-level appointment. And although I loved my work in government um, and have enormous uh, admiration for public service, I needed to uh, go on the job market for academia at that point. So 
uh, joined the faculty at the law school and the School of the Environment at Duke in 1994. And then eventually received tenure at the law school, and you've been there ever since. Yes, I think I got tenure in 1998, and then um, the chair that you mentioned, the Perkins professorship in 2004. Mm -hmm. Now, let's turn then to your work in environmental law, starting with your work in scholarship, I assume that there have been some significant changes in the scholarly world of environmental law, certainly since your 1987 uh, degree. What, what, are, what are some of the changes or one of the changes in the scholarly world of environmental law that stand out to you, that are prominent or important? Well, there are so many, but here are three that occur to me right now. Okay. Uh, one, one is that the, the issue of economic incentive instruments, which, as we said, Dick Stewart and others had pioneered, has become much more mainstream now. So it was, it was often controversial in the 1980s, and partly through the practical success of uh, programs like the Acid Rain Trading Program. And I know that you, your Project 88 was quite important and influential in getting that established as well. Um, that's become much more mainstream, although there are, there's a kind of new frontier of debate about economic incentive instruments, which has to do with the local distributional impacts. A second um, major change is that the use of economic analysis to evaluate the costs and benefits of regulation, which was also quite controversial in uh, the 70s and 80s, even though it was endorsed by presidents of both parties, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, Bush father, and, and Bill Clinton, the executive order that I worked on, remained quite controversial. One thing that's interesting is that the advocacy of cost-benefit analysis has shifted over time so that now one sees a lot more advocacy from the um, pro-environmental or economic analysis and cost-benefit analysis to demonstrate the large uh, social gains from environmental policy. Uh, I'm thinking of the work of people like um, Ricky Revez and Michael Livermore and, of course, Cass Sunstein and my colleague Matt Adler and many others. So the third thing is the, the um, much more interest and work now on distributional impacts on environmental justice and the distributional uh, consequences of environmental policy and also, I think the, the, the uh, community of environmental law scholars has become more diverse over time as well. Mm -hmm. You know, so of one of those you mentioned, um, it's interesting to take note, particularly because of your bipartisan record, that uh, if it was the Bush 41 administration that really launched the first tremendous attention to so-called market-based approaches or economic incentive approaches to environmental protection. We saw it also in the prior Reagan administration with the lead gasoline phase down, but it was certainly picked up by the subsequent Clinton administration, somewhat by the subsequent Bush administration, certainly by the Obama administration, and then little attention from the Trump administration, and sadly, um, diminished attention from the current administration, which seems to have moved left on environmental issues such that economists, from everyone I talk with in the administration and everyone on the outside, uh, economists are less influential uh, and less involved on environmental policy developments uh, in the executive office of the president and within the executive branch more broadly than they have been in some of those previous administrations. I don't know if you've seen that as well. 
Uh, I can't comment on what's happening inside the administration. You know, I think one point you made with which I certainly agree is that the Trump administration was a kind of uh, discontinuous or mm-hmm. attempted attempted to be um, moving in a very different direction of uh, deregulation and diminished use of economic valuations uh, of environmental impacts, um, such as the social cost of carbon. And um, at least at the beginning of the Biden administration, they were uh, reaffirmed and returned to the bipartisan consensus that you described from the 1970s up to 2016. For example, President Biden issued a memorandum on modernizing regulatory review on his first day in office, which reaffirmed the executive orders from the Clinton and and Obama administrations. Quite right. Although, you know, a year and three months later, we're still waiting for the revised updated social cost of carbon, which was promised from the administration uh, shortly after Inauguration Day when um, the social cost of carbon was put back in place using the Obama number, essentially. Yes, I've been waiting with uh, curiosity for to see those as well. So let me, let, before I turn uh, finally to uh, environmental policy, and I really do want to get into that with you, um, on scholarship, one last question, and I apologize for this, uh, Jonathan, because I know it's asking you, like, you know, for which of your children is your favorite, but what's the one research publication, not policy writing, but of your scholarly work, What's the one scholarly publication you are most proud of? <laughs> well, yeah, that is an impossible question. Also for someone whose career is very much, um, I always feel like I'm still a student, that I'm still learning. So That's good. Uh, yeah, it's, it's one of the joys of being a scholar. Um, you know, I think the work that I've done on... Um, Risk, risk trade-offs, and really on the multi multi-risk world, which which goes back to uh, the first book I published with John Graham uh, called "Risk versus Risk," with a foreword by Cass Sunstein, and then more much through more recent articles too on learning to manage the multi-risk world. That's really been about the need for decision makers to think about the multiple impacts of their policies, and and not only the intended or target impact, but the side effects and the side effects might be adverse, might be bad, like what we called countervailing risks, but that might also be beneficial, co-benefits, and to really broaden the scope of, uh, of thinking and analysis so that um, decisions really take into account the full scope of important impacts. I think that's, that's one area of work that I um, feel very uh, proud of, if one can say that. I'm, I'm hesitant sure. to use that word, but also, but also that I hope really has uh, real uh, benefits for society. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's important that you raise that. And, and let me alert listeners that um, if you'd like to hear more on that topic and from Jonathan's former co-author, John Graham, um, whether you're coming to this podcast through Spotify or one of the other many platforms on which we are available. If you go back in the list, uh, you'll find that John Graham was, in fact, a guest of ours uh, early on and, in fact, talks about some of the same issues. And I I suspect he probably refers to Jonathan uh, Weiner in that. Now, with that, let me actually now turn to your views on environmental policy. Uh, 
broadly or with examples, however you like, what's your assessment of the current U.S. administration's environmental policy, but putting aside climate change, if we can, for the moment, because there's a lot else, obviously. One thing that's interesting that seems like a significant change or evolution is uh, moving towards more use of fiscal policy, of the government spending power to address a lot of environmental issues through the infrastructure bill, the the proposal for the, the, the Build Back Better bill that's still pending or stuck in Congress, and things like that. Um, as opposed to the regulatory power. And on on the regulatory side, I think, as you said a minute ago, it's notable that the, the Biden administration has, has promised some uh, new guidance on regulation, revisions to something called OMB Circular A4. Those are still pending. Um, and then there have been some regulations promulgated, for example, a proposed rule on methane emissions from existing oil and gas facilities. But there's also been some court challenges which have delayed uh, some of the regulations. For instance, the pending uh, case in the U.S. Supreme Court called West Virginia versus EPA about whether EPA or how EPA can regulate greenhouse gases from power plants, electric power plants. And there's been a court challenge to the use of the social cost of carbon, although that's currently on hold. Can I so, ask you about that, Jonathan, since you bring up the court challenges, and which exist, obviously, in any administration, and many of those court challenges, as Ricky Rivez emphasized when he was a guest with us during the Trump administration, were quite successful because of, I guess, the lack of thought or quality that went into the writing of the Trump-era regulations. Um, but in any administration, this happens. But I do wonder whether or not we would anticipate that court challenges during the Biden administration are likely to be more successful than they were during the Obama administration because of Mr. Trump's 243 uh, appointments to the federal judiciary, which is more than 25% of the total. Plus, of course, perhaps more importantly, you know, the three justices appointed to the Supreme Court, this 6-3 majority that now exists for the conservative side, indeed sort of an originalist uh, conservative side. W what's your expectation in terms of the likelihood of uh, regulations from this administration in the environmental realm uh, surviving court challenges? One point is... Um that the Trump administration seemed to have a much higher losing rate in court than prior administrations. And the, the tracker kept by Ricky Rivez's group at NYU, the Institute for Policy Integrity, uh, which I'm on the advisory board of, and Bethany Davis-Knoll and others there suggest a much higher loss rate. Uh, that could portend um, continued judicial scrutiny in future administrations as well. And so it would behoove the Biden administration and later administrations to be extra careful about uh, following the administrative procedures. And um, uh, in the last year, we, as you noted, the Supreme Court has um, issued some opinions about regulation, some environmental, some public health, uh, but um, in which several of the justices, a majority of the Supreme Court, and especially concurring opinions by Justice Neil Gorsuch and, uh, and Justice Alito and Justice Thomas have suggested a more robust um, approach to requiring that Congress has to speak especially clearly if 
the federal government, the executive branch, can, is going to try to address major questions or questions of vast importance. And that doctrine, which was cited by the court majority in uh, holding that the Centers for Disease Control could not uh, put a moratorium on evictions last August, in August 2021, and in January 2022, holding that OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, uh, could not mandate uh, vaccination or testing rule at private employers. That's That doctrine of uh, major questions is getting a lot more attention than it used to. So that may be a change from, from the last uh, several decades. So that's a fun, fundamental change, uh, potentially. Would you also anticipate, Jonathan, that the Chevron doctrine, which our listeners are well acquainted with from previous podcasts, that this court might actually, uh, if not overrule it, at least revise it in ways which would substantially reduce the authority that executive branch agencies currently enjoy within the environmental or the regulatory area more broadly? That's possible. The Chevron Doctrine, which says that if a statute is ambiguous, then the court will look to the agency's interpretation of the ambiguity um, and comes from a decision back in 1984 about EPA regulating air pollution and interpreting the word source in the Clean Air Act. And the the court back in 1984 said, yes, EPA, your interpretation uh, is is acceptable. Uh, Well, at least some of the current sitting Supreme Court justices have been critical of the Chevron Doctrine. Justice Neil Gorsuch, back when he was uh, an appeals court judge on the Tenth Circuit, has written opinions sharply criticizing the Chevron Doctrine. And the major questions doctrine or, or um, concept was earlier thought to be a kind of exception to the major to the Chevron doctrine. It was that well, if the statute's ambiguous, but it's a really important question, then we would expect that Congress would not delegate such an important question to the agency. But the but the next move is well, then who does interpret the ambiguity? It's the court. It's the, the judges. So in the in the OSHA vaccination or testing case in January of this year, you see that sharply debated between the majority and Justice Gorsuch's concurring opinion and the dissenting opinion by, written by Justice Breyer. You know, to outsiders like myself, I mean, I'm not a legal scholar, I'm not even a political scientist, but an economist, what it seems that this Supreme Court might itself picture as returning some of the power from the executive branch to, quote-unquote, where it belongs, the Congress. It actually may be moving some of that power from the executive branch to the judicial branch. As you hinted, you know, in the uh, OSHA vaccination or testing rule case from January, Chevron, the Chevron case was not even cited. And in the and then in the EPA uh, climate change case about the clean power plan and the uh, from the Obama administration and the Trump administration's attempt to replace that with the affordable clean energy rule under Clean Air Act Section 111. So there was an oral argument before the Supreme Court on February 28th, and the Chevron case was not mentioned. It was kind of striking. The um, yeah, if if the Supreme Court is saying. Well, if the statute doesn't speak clearly, then it goes back to Congress, 
it could go back to Congress, and occasionally Congress does enact a statute that clarifies, fills in the gaps. So for example, uh, 20 years ago, the Supreme Court held that the Food and Drug Administration does not have the authority to regulate tobacco under the law at the time, and Congress did enact a statute that then gave FDA that authority, but it, it took nine I years. See. Interesting. It took nine years. And so and one other example that's uh, in the environmental arena more recently is there was a decision by the D.C. Circuit, U.S. Court of Appeals in Washington, D.C., saying that EPA did not have the authority to regulate HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons, under the um, then language of the Clean Air Act. And just uh, about two, maybe three years later, Congress enacted a new statute in late 2020 that gave EPA renewed authority. So that can happen, but it could be it could be stuck in gridlock. And so that may mean that it's it's the court that uh, ends up interpreting the statute or or holding that the statute does not provide the authority and then the agency uh, is stuck. A, a, what may be an interesting footnote on what you mentioned about late uh, 2020 and HFCs is that that was part of, it was a, a small part of a very large bit of COVID legislation and was signed into law by former President Trump. This was during the yes. what we would call the transition period normally, but there wasn't much of a transition. Um, now, some listeners could take much of what we said and what you've been uh, saying, I think quite correctly, to be somewhat pessimistic in terms of what might be happening on the regulatory front. Obviously, you started with thinking about legislation and given the prominence of what I'll refer to with a single name, Senators Manchinema, um, that those two senators combined may make it very difficult for the Build Back Better bill, even if in a shrunk and greatly limited form, to succeed. That all sounds pessimistic, so I am determined to give you an opportunity to conclude with something that might allow you to be more optimistic, if you wish to be, Jonathan, but otherwise don't. And that is, I want to ask you about the youth movements of climate activism, which are such a change from, as you well know, from even five years ago, letter 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, most prominently in 2019, and then again in 2021 in the lead up and in Glasgow. I'm not just referring to Greta Thunberg, but to many students, probably your students at Duke and certainly my students at Harvard. And I'd like to know what's your reaction to these youth movements regarding climate activism. I agree that is a, uh, a cause for optimism. And uh, I think on campuses across the country and around the world, one sees um, enthusiasm, energy, some sense of impatience and indignation that the you know, earlier generations didn't uh, address these problems adequately. I think we, we, we anticipated uh, when, you know, when you and I and Dick Stewart and others were working on climate change policy design, back 30 years ago that if we needed to design the institutions well so that uh, we would not face a crunch time later of, of uh, uh, trying to address climate change in a big hurry. Unfortunately, in, to some extent, we are in that crunch time right now. And I would add to the examples you gave about international youth involvement in international negotiations, also the youth involvement in domestic climate litigation, the, Ju the Juliana case that's still still 
percolating in the in the Ninth Circuit uh, and in Oregon. Uh, but there have been a, a number of other lawsuits like that, and those lawsuits may not each individually hit a home run, but um, the persistence uh, can pay off, as we've seen in some past litigation like on tobacco and and um, other broad social, public health, and environmental issues. The other thing I'd just add is, you mentioned Senator Sinema and Senator Manchin. The challenge of a, uh, achieving and enacting coalition in the Congress is also a challenge for scholars, researchers, to figure out a policy design that will be successful, both not only environmentally and economically, but in the political economy, be successful. And I think, you know, in the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments, there were sharp regional differences uh, of impact and of opinion. And some of that was solved through the design of the cap-and-trade system. And I know you've written about how a cap-and-trade system can decouple efficiency and equity in a way that enables solving both of those uh, or, or addressing and improving both efficiency and equity. So, uh, you know, I think there are prospects, whether it's cap and trade or a carbon tax or some other approach, there are prospects for a well-designed policy to find its way to an enacting coalition. So I'll take that as a definitely a positive and optimistic way to conclude so that our listeners, as well as you and, and I, can finish with a smile on our face. So (laughs) thank you very much, Jonathan, for taking time to join us today. Thank you, Rob. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. Our guest today has been Jonathan Weiner, the William and Thomas Perkins Professor of Law at Duke Law School. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.